when we have a negative emotion like fear, we can go into a worry thinking mode as a way to feel like we're in control of that negative emotion or distract ourselves from that negative emotion or occasionally, you know, plan something that, that actually works. Hmm. So worry, I would say, and, and anxiety can be negatively reinforced in the same way that these other everyday addictions are. Welcome to the Healthy Human Revolution podcast. I'm Dr. Lori Marvis. And once again, I'm so excited and honored to invite Dr. Jed Brewer back to talk about some really cool stuff. How are you, sir? I'm good. It's great to be here. Wonderful. Well, today we're going to talk about everyday addictions and people may be going, hmm, what does that mean? Well, I'm going to start out with just saying, well, first of all, what does that mean? Why are we all addicted? Can you explain? I'd be happy to. And I think it starts with a, probably with a story um, that kind of explains how this process takes place. There's actually a guy named Edward Thorndike back in the 1800s. Um, and he was actually fed up by the endless stories of dogs finding their way home despite all odds. And he thought it was a bunch of hua. I guess he wasn't a big Lassie fan. <laughs> so this guy, he wanted to study how intelligent animals actually are beyond anecdote. And so he would put cats and dogs in cages and he'd put food in plain sight and he'd give them a little trick to try to figure out to get out of the cage. And he measured how quickly they learned to escape by pulling levers or doing whatever. And he noticed that they got faster and faster at escaping so they could actually learn. And importantly, he could measure this. Um, and even noted in his paper, which he calls animal intelligence, he noted that this could be repeated and verified by other experimenters. So he actually uh, kind of kicked off this field of, of behavioral or cognitive neuroscience where we can you know, precisely measure and verify things. Hmm. So fast forward about 50 years, and there's this guy, B.F. Skinner. Many people probably are familiar with him. He's relatively well-known. He's most famous for his work with pigeons and um, found that he could replicate these experiments and he could actually teach pigeons to win a cross-court shot in ping pong for a reward. So he could teach them that specifically. So Skinner is interesting because he developed a theory that he called operant conditioning or positive and negative reinforcement, which is probably something that we all learned in college. And, you know, like, what is that thing? Now, we now know that this, this was actually set up as a survival mechanism to help us remember where to find food and also to avoid danger. So it requires three things, a trigger, behavior, and a reward. So if you think of this as, you know, if we're hungry we find a food source, we eat it, our stomach sends this dopamine signal to our brain that says, remember what you ate and where you found it, okay? So that, that simple process, trigger behavior reward, uh, in the year 2000, Eric Kendall wins the Nobel Prize, showing that this is evolutionarily conserved all the way back to the sea slug, okay? Mm. So a very, very well-characterized theory you know, it's rock solid and it was reproducible. You could reproduce it in cats and dogs, pigeons, and even the sea slug. So, you know, I, I had learned operant conditioning in college, hadn't, didn't really think much of it. And a couple of years after my residency training, you know, I was this young assistant professor at Yale and I was like really struggling to help my patients um, with their addictions, trying to, trying to get their behaviors under control, whether it was, you know, cocaine, alcohol, heroin, whatever, they were really struggling. And I had this light bulb moment. Um, I was like, wait a minute. 
this positive and negative reinforcement pathway, this actually explains so much of human behavior. It's not just addictions, but it's everything from addictions to eating to anxiety. And if we think of this, you know, look what we have today, we have an obesity epidemic, food's everywhere. You know, we, you can think of this pathway, we learn to eat, to feel good, even when we're not hungry. We, we call this um, psychological hunger as compared to physiologic hunger. Um, mm. Yeah, if you think of these other things like opioid epidemics, we learn to numb ourselves from pain. Or how about the tech boom? Right, we learn to look at cute puppy pictures instead, you know, on Instagram when we're stressed or bored. We've got these weapons of mass distraction right in front of us, yeah. um, and it's interesting. Social media is actually engineered for likes and tweets, and food's engineered to be addictive. You know, I, I like the Doritos, this um, you know, completely manufactured object <laughs> that's there to get us addicted. So in terms of everyday addictions, it's basically anything that follows this reward-based learning habit loop where there's a trigger, a behavior, and a reward. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So you have someone's feeling, well, and it kind of goes back to your whole premise with anxiety, which by the way, guys, if you haven't, you need to go to unwindinganxiety.com and then there's craving to quit. He's got some really cool apps, eat right now, some really cool stuff. Dr. Brewer on TED talk to you, but that's a whole other subject, but <laughs> some really cool stuff. Um, but I, yeah. So like you had mentioned, like, so food, right? So I, I know I like certain foods like chocolate, right? So then I eat my chocolate that tasted good. And then when I'm in stress, I was like, your body's like, Oh yeah, remember that chocolate made you feel good. And then you go and eat that chocolate and then you get this reward because it made you feel good. That dopamine hit. So simple terms, you got to get your dopamine, right? Indeed, indeed. And there's actually, there's a, there's a part of our brain that's also involved here that stores reward value. It's interesting. You mentioned chocolate because I think of this part of the brain, it's called the orbitofrontal cortex and it's, it stores reward value. I think of it as the bigger, better offer part of the brain because it's always looking for that bigger, better offer. Okay. So if you think of, um, let's say we eat some milk chocolate and our brain says, oh, that tastes pretty good. You know, maybe tastes better than broccoli, something like that. And then we eat dark chocolate. Well, I'll just speak for myself. When I eat dark chocolate and compare it to milk chocolate, it's a, it's a no-brainer. My brain says dark chocolate all the way. So that bigger, better offer part of the brain has shifted its reward value from you know, broccoli to milk chocolate to dark chocolate. Oh, wow. And so when given a choice, you know, it's going to pick the dark chocolate every time. That's actually really important because that's how these habits and everyday addictions get, get set up. And it's also, you know, our brain learns these things and then it kind of sets them, sets them down as habit and then doesn't look back. It doesn't say, oh, how rewarding is this now? Mm. So for example, if we eat chocolate and our brain says, oh, that's rewarding, you know, it just assumes, you know, we, we start eating chocolate while we're vegging out in front of the television or binging on Netflix. You can binge on Netflix right. and chocolate at the same time if you want to. Right. When we don't pay attention to how rewarding that actually is in that moment, Right. It's problematic. That's where we, you know, that's where the uh, the, the um, obesity epidemic comes from. Is where right. we eat, we eat beyond satiety, and we don't see that it actually doesn't feel that good. So I have a question. So if we lived in a world, you know, I like plants, and we only had you know whole natural foods in front of us, or we didn't have food scientists, you know, <laughs> engineering foods that make us addicted. Do you think we would have a food addiction? Like, would we be addicted to blueberries because we're getting a little bit of a sweet thing? I'm just curious. What do you think? 
it's funny you mentioned blueberries because <laughs> because I remember specifically for myself um gummy worms they were a big issue for me so I used to you know it's like I couldn't you know gummy bears and I couldn't exist in the same place <laughs> so I would you know I'd come home and be late at you know and I see this big thing of gummy worms and I just start eating gummy worms and I remember even consciously thinking well, I'm going to feel sick tonight, but at least they'll all be gone. So, you know, I won't, I won't have any in the house tomorrow. Right. So enter blueberries. When I actually compare, think of this bigger, better offer part of our brain. Right. When I would eat gummy worms and compare them to blueberries, the blueberries had just the right amount of sweetness. Like there's this natural, it probably co-evolved with our taste buds. Mm-hmm to know exactly like here's the right amount of sweetness, et cetera, et cetera. So when I compare the two, you know, gummy worms, they kind of taste like petroleum. <laughs> you know, they're, they're really disgusting. Um, and blueberries, they taste great. And right. so I don't think, you know, especially, you know, you eat, you, and I was just eating blueberries the other day. I eat a certain amount. And as long as I pay attention, you know, I can notice when there's there, that, that, um, that sweetness starts to wane and it kind of says, mm-hmm. okay, you're full now. Mm-hmm. So the, the reward value naturally starts to, to peak and then starts to drop because mm-hmm. the, the bloated feeling or the, you know, the eating too much feeling comes in and mm-hmm. says, this isn't that rewarding. Mm-hmm. So I don't think, I, I think if we just had natural food, I don't, I really don't think that we would have a, an opiate, uh, Uh-oh. you know, my thought, I, I could be wrong. Sorry, you cut out. What was that? You, you don't think we would have an issue? I'm, you know, if, if we only had natural foods to eat, I can't imagine we would have an opioid or an opioid, probably that too, <laughs> an obesity <laughs> epidemic. I can't imagine that we'd have an obesity I epidemic. Like I can't that. imagine overeating on blueberries. Like, so blueberries and dark chocolate are my thing as well. So, you know, if ever I had to have a last food, as my last wish would be dark covered, you know, give me some dark chocolate covered blueberries. Oh my gosh. And so that would be, I think the same thing, right? Because you're not getting that, you get a bliss point, I think, where you're like, all right, that's, you've reached that satiated feeling and stress receptors are saying you're done because of fiber and all the nutrients. So I agree. I think you're right on personally. Well, so. my, my stomach says it's so, but that's an N of one. <laughs> and yours <laughs> says it's so too. So that's an N of two. So we are 100% so far. That's right. In case <laughs> after case. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's something to it whenever um, you know I'm working with patients and I've been doing plant-based nutrition with patients for seven years. What I see is they're like, you know, Dr. Marvis is so weird. My cravings go away. So mm-hmm. I don't even crave those unhealthy foods anymore. And the sweetness in their taste buds switch. So I think, you know, we're clearing out all the, you know, the unhealthy tastes and desires and they're actually going to where they should be. And that's where we see that amazing result of no more cravings, at least. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting you say that because I see that as well with our mindful eating programs, like the eat right now program. Um, When people are eating just natural food as compared to junk food, they notice that the junk food actually just you know, uh, kicks them in the pants to eat more junk food. Mm-hmm. Whereas they don't have that same level of drive of, I have to have more with natural food. And I'm sure that has to do with dopamine release. There's recent studies showing that you actually get dopamine release in two places, you know, once food hits your tongue. And then also when it gets to your stomach, 
Interesting. And, yeah, and there's some speculation around you know this kind of kind of inducing or suppressing certain things. See, especially if things are you know really jacking that dopamine system, that that could just you know perpetuate more and more and more. Interesting. I need to read that paper. That would be really cool because I like to try to take tidbits of information and give my patients a little bit of knowledge so that when they start having certain things or someone asks them questions, they can just have little, it's like little newsflash and like little Twitter notes saying, you know, here or there. Um, that would be cool. Awesome. So what can we be addicted to? I mean, so you were mentioning technology, you were mentioning foods. I mean, is there anything off limits like that we wouldn't become addicted to other than like whole natural foods maybe but like where is it just this manufactured environment that we have or would we have become addicted to other things in within our whole natural environment i mean i think those are the yeah especially where it can be uh, engineered those are the extremes so okay people spending you know i think there was a study showing there the average person swipes their phone over two thousand times a day something ridiculous like that wow yeah, yeah. And the top 10%, it's like three, two to three times more than that. So, wow. you know, the, the, these weapons of mass distraction are really, you know, they're, they're doing a good job of keeping us hooked. Weapons of mass distraction. Holy, <laughs> being prior military, I appreciate the WMD. So, <laughs> um, it, that- but there, there are, I w- there are a couple of other things, you know, we've looked at this. So there were some, well, I'll talk about anxiety because I think there's the most work around this. There was a guy, um, Borkovec at Penn State, who did a lot of work showing that anxiety can be perpetuated in the same negatively reinforced way that food can be. You know, when we we're stressed out, we eat to feel better. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we have a negative emotion like fear, we can go into a worry thinking mode as a way to feel like we're in control of that negative emotion or distract ourselves from that negative emotion or occasionally, you know, plan something that, that actually works. Hmm. So worry, I would say, and, and anxiety can be negatively reinforced in the same way that these other everyday addictions are. Okay. Uh, so I think it can even go into the realm of emotion or, or uh, mood or anxiety disorders like, like anxiety itself. And you, and you go into that in your Unwinding Anxiety app and kind of explain it. Can you explain so how someone starts, let's say they something you know initiates or the ball starts rolling with anxiety, then how does that build into a persistent issue? Can you just kind of talk to that a little bit? Sure. So if, if we have some fear, let's say we're planning a trip, especially let's say we don't travel very much and... You know, we've planned a trip to, um, you know, to fly somewhere. And so we plan to, um, you know, plan our trip and, and plan out when we're going to go to the airport. So we might think, you know, we might do that initial planning. And then the next day, our mind has this thought like, oh, no, what if I miss my flight? And so there's that trigger. And then the behavior is to start worrying about missing the flight right? We've already planned it out. We've already got it all mapped out. We might go through the plans again. We might plan 10 times, 15 times. None of that actually changes. Mm-hmm. But there are, a bunch of, uh, there are a bunch of conditions that we don't have over which we have no control, right? We don't know what the traffic's going to be like. We don't know if the plane's going to be late. We don't know what the, how long the security line's going to be like at the airport. So there are a bunch of things that our brain doesn't have any control over. But that worrying 
so that worrying at first says, okay, if I, you know, if I worry, I'm going to, I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to have more control. But the reality is the worry itself doesn't feel very good. So it's not very rewarding. Hmm. So instead of the, that fear thought being a trigger to um, trigger worry, the worry becomes its own trigger and then starts just pinging off of itself. You know, I think of this as like going over the event horizon to this black hole of anxieties where, right. you know, the worry was there to help with the anxiety, but now worry is just causing more worry. And then it's just worry, 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 worry. Wow. <coughs> Excuse me. So you just get this downward spiral effect. And so then that's where your work came, comes in with the mindfulness to step out of it and observe it. Yes. Yeah. It, so. so to map it out, see, oh, look, I'm getting stuck in this worry habit loop how rewarding is this so that my, you know, our orbitofrontal cortices can see, you know, this isn't that rewarding. We become disenchanted with that old behavior. And then we can actually substitute with a bigger, better offer of mindfulness practices uh, to help people step out of the loop itself. Which is really cool. And you have a book called, I still need an interview about your book too. I get lots of, we got lots of interviews to do. Uh, (laughs) um, So, okay. When does someone know they're addicted? So let's I guess it goes back to what is the actual definition of addiction? So can you explain a little bit so we can just kind of be maybe observers of our own behavior and take that curiosity track like you talk about a lot and just, you know, how does that process start to even understand? Sure. So it doesn't have to be a classic addiction like alcohol or heroin or cocaine. We can simply look at our own behavior. And I like the very simple definition of continued use despite adverse consequences. That was a definition I learned in residency training. And it really stuck with me because it was, it was simple. It was pragmatic. Simple. I could remember it. <laughs> mm-hmm. It was pragmatic. And it also helped me apply that to all sorts of behaviors, including everyday addiction. So, you know, if somebody is getting in a car accident because they're texting too much and they're not paying attention when they're driving, well, there's continued use despite adverse consequences. And in fact, texting has been shown to be more dangerous than drunk driving now. So there's a great example of, you know, everyday addiction of, of being addicted to our phone, just texting where there's continued use despite adverse consequences. Uh, we can see the same thing with, with, with uh, emotional eating. You know, where if we binge eat, for example, there's continued use despite adverse consequences where we're losing control, we're gaining weight, getting diabetes, all these other things. Uh, so I think it applies to, you know, quite a few things, social media, technology, texting, all these things. Um, fit that simple definition of continued use despite adverse consequences. Hmm. So anything that we see, so going back to the technology, which is really, I think the phones, you know, we're always, we have them in our pocket. You almost feel nervous without it anymore because you're like, it's my lifeline to the world. Um, But we're seeing now with children, right? So we see kids that are with on these cell phones and there was a, there was an interesting Facebook post. There was a teacher, I think she was teaching uh, either fourth or fifth grade. And she had her kids leave the phones on. And as she was teaching class, she had a um, little chalkboard. And whenever someone got a notification, they were supposed to go up and and click on it where it was. Was it an email? Was it a Twitter? Was it Snapchat? Was it Facebook? And all these different things. And it was hundreds and hundreds, you know, in one classroom when teachers trying to teach. Um, Really interesting. So that's, what is that doing to our one in adult psyche, what do you think it's doing to our kids? Because they're never really able to learn like deep work and deep flow. Cause I think it takes, 
you know, time without distraction to really understand the value of concentration and really getting into deep thighs. I don't think we're learning critical thinking. I mean, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. I think it's doing this to our brains. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's actually quite a bit of work now showing that things like multitasking are really not good for our brains at all. Mm-hmm. And so if you think of leaving all these notifications on every time we get distracted, our brain has to ramp down its working memory from what it was doing, ramp it up to whatever it's paying attention to. And then uh, when we come back, we have to ramp that down and ramp this back up. It's, it's really taxing on our brains. Wow. Wow. So then I think then you worry about your willpower is run down, more likely to start binging when you're eating yes. and you're working and all these different things. I think it's really sad. So I almost think and then, then your work, you worry about your relationships eroding because I have seen so many families, you know, there'll be a family of four, you go out to eat and all four of them, the parents, the kids are all on their little devices or you have a little two-year-old that's on some iPad or something. They're not interacting with the family. Um, so it's just, where do you begin to see, like, how would you describe that to someone? Like, how would you bring someone's emotions or where they can observe that? Like what, what signs would they begin to look for when let's say technology? Cause I think that's one that we can all appreciate. Mm-hmm. Um, where would they begin to see that? Is it, they're not getting things done or they're feeling anxious? Cause I almost feel like they feel anxious, right? When they don't get a response or something, is there a way to notice like notice? I, well, I think there is a, a way to notice. And this is where I think awareness is is kind of like a superpower that can really help us really become aware of these things. Okay. And it helps in several ways. So I'll, I'll give an example. I was working, see, I was working with a resident um, who was running a, a mindfulness group with me in the clinic um, for addictions. And so uh, as, and she didn't know anything about mindfulness. So I had her use one of our apps um, to learn mindfulness. I think it was either our, our craving to quit or our eat right now app where just so she could learn the basics. And I said, just apply it to anything, um, you know, that you, any behavior or any habit that you have in any everyday addiction. And she started, she actually started applying it to um, her. She would pick her nails when she was nervous <laughs> um, and started to notice that, and then um, you know, within three weeks, her, her you're just like, "Well, look at my, look at my hands. My nails are perfect." <laughs> um, but she also started. She said she came to clinic one day and she said, "You know, you wouldn't believe this. I was at home the other night with my two young kids, and they were sitting at the dinner table eating dinner, and I was standing away from the table checking my newsfeed. And I woke up to that, and I was thinking, "Oh my gosh." how did it come to this where I'm not interacting with my family? I'm checking my newsfeed. Wow. So she woke up to that and it really just broke this spell. She she became disenchanted with this, you know, with her checking her newsfeed in particular. So I think the critical piece there is to bring awareness to what the consequences are of, of these behaviors. So for her, it was, she was noticing the negative consequences of not interacting with her kids. Right. <coughs> Bless me. you. So that's the first step. And that's actually the first step in change. I, I actually am not a, a big believer in willpower being our savior. <laughs> no. If you look at dieting and, you know, yo-yo dieting, it clearly doesn't work there. A lot of right. good work showing that we get, you know, we get our ego gets depleted throughout the day. 
um, and that it, it may be more of a myth than a than a muscle to start with. So, right. so willpower aside, you know, I think this is where we can actually uh, just bring awareness in and start mm-hmm. to notice. Oh, versus consequences. So you sorry, you cut that. You said bring awareness in and what? And really pay attention to the adverse consequences. Like, what am I getting from this? Like, mm-hmm. experientially, not th- not in a thinking way. Like, oh, I shouldn't eat this type of food, or I shouldn't use social media. But just like the uh, the doctor that I was working with, you know, she woke up and she noticed, oh, I'm not interacting with my kids. So there were clear adverse consequences for her. She felt she felt horrible. Mm-hmm. That so that helps her orbitofrontal cortex wake up and say, "Wow, this is not very rewarding," and that reward value drops. Hmm. Hmm. So I think that's really where it can, you know, this awareness can actually help us see, you know, oh, is this addictive or not? This isn't to say that technology is bad at all. You know, I right. think I, I couldn't navigate in Boston without my GPS. Right. So. Right. So I think right. technology is really helpful, yet if we have, you know, if we're a complete slave to technology, then, you know, then we're going to get addicted to all sorts of things, just using that as an example. Right. So really bringing awareness to the consequences helps us differentiate, oh, is this helpful or is this harmful? So it goes back to, I like what you were saying that wasn't, you're not judging the behavior, you're just observing it and making a statement, a truth statement saying, this is not fruitful, this is, you know, not enjoyable, then you just become, it's just not as enchanting as like you said. Yeah. So, yeah. Interesting. And then not judgment helps because it helps break the veil, you know, the, or that spell from something. It's like, oh, I love gummy worms. Wait, right. let, me, let me actually see. No, they're not that great. And it also <laughs> helps with the self-judgment, which I see so much, especially in our Eat Right Now program or even our Unwinding Anxiety, where a lot of people are just, they judge themselves. Oh, you know, they can't even look in the mirror, some of them, because they judge themselves so much over that. So if we right. can't objectively see ourselves, it's going to be really hard to be able to work because then they're stuck in these habit loops of self-judgment. You know, right. they think about what they might look like, they get this trigger of judgment and then that just spirals them out even more. Wow. Because it's, it is a bit of a spiral for sure. Hmm. So do you have any suggestions for like, do you, do you find that they're in, I don't know, maybe there's research or not that with technology that there's certain things we can do to decrease because we all are going to be connected by technology. Is there certain things that will decrease, like maybe turning off the notifications or when you are working, turning everything down? I mean, do you have any recommendations for people who are, okay, so like now I wear it's a problem. How do I fix it? Yeah. So I think there are two things. One is if we know that these, these, um, notifications and whatnot are very distracting, it's relatively straightforward to turn them off and then, be in, um, you know, really bring a conscious awareness to when we want to check and say, am I about to check my email or my Instagram feed or whatever, because I have an urge and I'm just, you know, impulsively doing it because I'm stressed or has it been three hours and it's, you know, I'm consciously checking my email to see, you know, what's going on and, and responding to emails. I see. So that's one piece. And then the other piece is where we can actually bring awareness in 
and start to see where we, you know, how much it's not helping us when we are impulsively eating or impulsively checking our phones or whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's where I think that's where we can become disenchanted with the old behaviors and find that bigger, better offer um, that might actually be right there all along. Like, like you're talking about, you know, really being immersed in a project and really concentrated. It feels really good. You know, our, our, our brain is, is really strong. So why not actually tap into those, those natural reward based learning processes rather than trying to fight those with, you know, the younger parts of our brain that are involved in, in cognitive control. Right. And I think that's why I like running because there's no notifications, there's nothing and it's just solitude and your focus, but it's uh, rewarding in that sense that you're can just think and kind of evolve through problems that you need to solve. It's, it's like, you know, I think Einstein used to, although I'm not Einstein or anything, but Einstein used to just sit and think, right. Mm. Just to think through a problem, just work out his hypothesis. I'm sure he did like, you know, I don't know, thinking experiments or something, but it's just, it's kind of that ability to allow, you know, ourselves to, uh, to actually think ourselves through something versus it reacting emotionally and constantly never being in touch with the emotion that we want. And it's just, there's so much rapid response that we just can't sit back and enjoy things and I don't cherish and enjoy. I agree. I agree. And I think that from what I understand, uh, it was not only Einstein. So there was this phrase attributed to Einstein, which is basically, you know, um, we can't we can't solve a problem with the same consciousness that created it. As in, we it's hard to consciously think through a problem. I don't think he consciously thought up his thought, his you know laws or his theories of re- relativity. Right. But this goes back to even you know Charles Darwin, um, who had this contemplation path behind his house. I don't know. If it's, I don't think it's required to have a long beard, um, but I could just picture him, you know, kind of percolate through his head. So you cut and, out, you said something about stroking the beard, I think. Yeah, yeah. I don't think we need a, a long beard uh, to be, for any of us to be able to do this, but he used to, he, he, from what I understand, he used to just walk back and forth on this contemplation path wow. as he was contemplating his data. You know, it's like, why do those finches have a certain type of beak? And it's not that he could think his way through the problem because nobody had solved this problem before. And so Mm -hmm. it's not just about learning, but he had to let his brain kind of marinate in this idea before he came up with this theory of evolution. You know, same, same, I'm guessing uh, similar things for Einstein and all of those require the ability to be with something and just let it be there, be with uncertainty, which our brains don't like right? They love to be certain, but just resting in that not knowing and resting in that uncertainty and having the space to do that as compared to being constantly checking our phones or, you know, on top of everything or needing to be in the know. And so it's like, almost like if you had a circuit board in your brain and then you just lift the veil or any, uh, any obstructions and you just let the circuit do its thing. And you're Mm -hmm. just, you're just, there's no hindrance. There's no what is the word? And I can't remember my physics, but there was no uh, hindrance to the impedance. flow. Impedance. There you go. So there's nothing uh, impeding those thought flows and things because you're allowing yourself just to be and let it kind of do its thing. And I guess that's why people wake up and they have solutions to problems 
from, you know, the, maybe the day before or the night before, because their brain subconsciously is like been percolating and going, Hmm, let's do this. Let's do that. So yeah, our brains work so much better when we get out of the way. (laughs) (laughs) many things work better if we just get out of the way. (laughs) That's hilarious. Oh my goodness. But you had mentioned earlier before we started the podcast, um, the three to one positivity ratio and I kind of I think that's really fascinating. So would you mind just talking a little bit about that and what that means exactly? And, you know, just the science and why, just kind of go with that and see what you think. <laughs> I'd be happy to. This was, uh, and I think this is a, um, a cautionary tale uh, that's, that, you know, may, may be worth um, listening to. So I don't know how many folks have, have heard of this three to one positivity ratio. It's basically you know, have three positive to everyone negative thought or everyone negative emotion and you'll succeed. Uh, And this came about in, I think it was 2005 when two researchers uh, collected daily emotion diaries on college students and they plugged these into nonlinear fluid dynamics equations and, and voila, you know, they had this math principle that explained human flourishing. I was widely taken up and psychology led to a best-selling book and all this stuff. And and people really got on the bandwagon for this. Now, about eight years later or so, 2013, um, folks tried to replicate their study and they couldn't. They found significant errors in their methods. The work was discredited and the methods were even retracted from the journal. But the the take-home point here was that the reason why this was so popular was because this was visually appealing. You could watch this shift from, you know, this... shift. And then there was this simple mathematical formula for happiness. Just think three to one positive to negative emotions and you're good to go. Hmm. So this is, this is really where it's really important to have a sound theory that can be replicated. Right. And this is the difference between like positive. Want this to be true because we want that simple formula. Well, wouldn't it be, you know, think of the lottery, right? One sec, one sec. You said it's a difference between positive something and else you cut out. Sorry. Oh, sorry. No, that's okay. I didn't, uh, the, it, it's, it's really the difference between positive or even magical thinking. Right. right. <laughs> and, and, and truth and reality, you know, right. it, it, think of winning the lottery. It's different to have money in your pocket as compared to wishing you won the lottery. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah. And in science, the money in our pocket is replication. Right. But I think in real life, that's also true. Right. Can we replicate what we just did, right? If I have some positive emotion, can I replicate all, that all the time? Well, if we can do that, then nobody would ever be sad, probably, because right. who wants right. to have negative emotions? Right. No, I get it for sure. So that's interesting because... But I think there's obviously a space for negative emotions too, right? Because yeah. that's it's, the meaning that's of life. Being human. Totally human. Even as humans, we're very difficult creatures. But it is interesting because, you know, people are, there's always these writings about happiness and more of this happiness, which happiness is a, is a I think, just a reaction to a stimulus, like you said, right? There's no, like, you know, maybe there's joy or peace or thriving in a sense, but I don't think happiness is something that people should be striving for. I think instead it should be mindfulness and peace and contentment maybe is the word I'm looking for. What do you think? Yeah, I'm glad you bring that up because I think we can see a clear difference and it's been hard for people to define what happiness is. 
so often it, people mistake, I think, excitement for happiness. Yeah. Where it's like, what, what, what makes you happy? Riding on a roller coaster, getting that first kiss, um, you know, doing something exciting. So there's that excitement quality to experience that I think is very different than joy or contentment like you're talking about. One, actually, excitement, you know, feels kind of restless. There's this restless quality to it, whereas joy and contentment, literally, by definition, contentment is we're content. We're not, you know, we're not reaching for things. And I think the excitement piece is interesting because there's a, there's a link up to the dopaminergic system. There's that spritz that says, oh, I'm, I'm anticipating getting a reward. That's what the excitement, you know, I'm about to get a kiss. There's that excitement. Right, right. So there, that stuff can even be perpetuated and lead to a feeling of a lack. Oh, I'm not getting this. I'm not on a roller coaster. I'm not looking at some cute puppy video, you know, whatever. Right. As compared right. to, oh, well, I'm just enjoying what's happening and I don't need anything to feel better. Right. That's interesting too, because then you think, for example, going on a trip, a family trip, right? So, or any trip that you go, you're, it's almost like you anticipate it is almost more of a reward and exciting thing than actual, the actual trip. It's, it's, it's almost like for parents, you know, you enjoy the thought of giving your children these gifts, right? So like when I was a younger parent and he was like, Oh, give them the gift. They'll be excited. It'll be so fun. Cause I gave this to them and to see their joy. And you know, kids are kids. They look at it and go, cool. Five minutes later, it's on the ground. You're like, Oh, <laughs> and then you're disappointed by that experience because it wasn't what you were believing. It's like, oh, where is it? You know, that thrill and they're just, thanks mom, it's life changing, this is great. You know, so we just learned that we start doing experiential Christmases where we just go on a trip as a family mm. and build those memories together. And by far the most incredible experiences have been those trips um, outside of, you know, <clears throat> the occasional getting a kid something that they really want, but you know, something that they'll really actually cherish and use. But, um, but that, that is interesting. Is there any research on the expectation versus the actual experience of somebody? There's actually quite a bit. Uh, there was a guy, Wolfram Schutz, who did a bunch of work with non-human primates showing that, when we get, when we receive a reward the first time or you know, uh -huh. through a, some novel behavior, yeah. then we get this dopamine spritz and that actually says, okay, remember what you just did so you can repeat it. This actually goes back to this reward-based learning piece. Okay. Yet over time, the dopamine spritz shifts from receipt of reward to anticipation of reward. Interesting. So we start anticipating the behavior, which drives us to do it. Right? It makes sense from a survival standpoint. Oh, go get food so you can eat, so you can survive. Right. Yet the same is true. It's, it's not, oh, being on vacation. It's anticipating Baby. being on vacation because that's how our brains work. Hmm. Interesting. Huh. So much things to think about here. <laughs> so just because I know we're coming up on your time, any last bit where we should be talking about everyday addictions, like any last words of advice or someone who's like, wow, this is something new. I never really thought about it. Just like you mentioned the new resident. Is there anything at all that maybe you would just say, here's my last bit of advice on everyday addictions for the, the new listener, someone who's just like 
wow, what is this about? Excuse me. I, yeah, here I would say one, know the definition, right? Continue just despite adverse consequences and start paying attention to what you do in everyday life and see mm-hmm. is something causing adverse consequences or not, right? That already starts to help us pay attention to the things that might be helpful for us to pay attention to. The second piece would be to map out these habit loops, right? What's triggering me? Social media. Sorry, you said you just got caught. What's triggering me? You said what's yeah, what's what's triggering me to uh, do the behavior? For example, social media. Am I bored? And am I checking my Twitter or Instagram feed because I'm bored? Right. And then you know, so mapping out what's the trigger, the behavior, and the result. Sorry, I think there are, are maintenance guides. They'll be okay. But so it's triggering. It's mapping out the the habit loop and then the adverse consequences. Once. Yes. One sec, one sec. I was going to pause this. Go ahead. Sorry. So the second step after we map out these habit loops, you know, what was the trigger? What was the behavior? What was the result is really to dive into what is the result? What am I getting from this experientially? You know, like, Mm -hmm. oh, what is it like to eat three cookies as compared to two cookies as compared to one cookie? as compared to blueberries. (laughs) Right, right, absolutely. So you can almost look at the adverse reactions like or adverse events in your life and going, hmm, I keep having something happen or, you know, if they're getting sick all the time or if they're finding that they're worried or anxious about something at a certain period of time saying, why am I? And then maybe go backwards, follow the, you know, the breadcrumbs backwards and seeing what are those events? And then they can just kind of see the whole picture of the habit loop, right? Or is there an easier way? No, I think that's, and it's relatively simple. So people can generally map this out pretty easily and then really dive into the, you know, the results. What do I get from this? And the repeated, you know, the repeated nature of addictions is there'll be plenty of opportunities to notice these things. It's not like it's going to just happen once because if it just happens once, it's probably not an addiction. Right. Absolutely. That's where the, yeah, the continued use comes in. <laughs> um, so the third step is simply to find that bigger, better offer. And yeah. we talked a little bit about some of the things, you know, bringing curiosity in. There's specific mindfulness practices that tend to be that bigger, better offer that, um, you know, we teach as part of our programs. You know, others teach that as well. But I think even, you know, using food as an example, you know, what's the bigger, better offer? Blueberries? or gummy worms, you know? Mm-hmm. So if it's simply paying attention to food and seeing, you know, well, what do I get from this food versus this food? It, it's a relatively simple process. Well, this is interesting because I'm, I look back at my own behavior, not with my own addictions, I'm not telling you, I'm just kidding. Um, but if I look at patients with my conversations with patients, cause I'm always trying to get people to eat plants. So it's, I almost feel like I'm walking them through that step, right? So I'm walking them through these adverse reactions or events, diabetes, hypertension, <clears throat> high cholesterol, these obesity, joint pain, whatever it is. And we're talking through, I walk them through the physiologic point of, well, this is why this occurred. Um, this is the process. This is why you're eating this. And I kind of use a little bit of the dopamine. I talked to them about, you know, junk food and it's highly addictive and the environment and why you're wanting to eat this way. And it's okay socially and all these different triggers pushing them to do that behavior which led to this event (laughs) but then my bigger better offer is no medications no chronic disease and feeling better 
So I almost wonder if you're just hitting all three of those at once in this conversation, and that may be a better way than doing this traditional, you know, um, what they call it, the, uh, you know, when you're interviewing, motivational interviewing with patients and trying to figure out where are they ready in this chain of events of change or looking for these, you know, I find that the way when I work that way with patients and I give them hope and better, bigger, better offer, which I call hope, um, Mm -hmm. that works really well. Really, really well. It does. And I think both works. You know, I think the yeah. motivational interviewing piece helps people see how unrewarding the old behavior is. You know, it's like, oh, why don't you eat more? <laughs> well, I mean, my diabetes is going to get worse. So there's, right. you know, oh, they are, they're actually beginning to see their own, the, the own detriments of, their, mm-hmm. of the old behaviors. And then you can say, okay, we'll try this compared to this. And don't believe me, just try it and see if it's true. And if, right. you know, if you, if you lose weight and go off insulin, then there's a bigger, better offer right there. Right. Absolutely. I think, I guess I feel urgency to have more actionable things really quickly. Like I make them commit to something before mm-hmm. I leave them because they may or may not come back. So that's my concern is because if I don't and they go off track and they keep on doing that behavior, there's death at their door or diabetes or loss of kidneys or, you know, so for me, I see it as a life changing. And now it's actually kind of a funny thing. Cause then you get, maybe I'm addicted to that because I get the dopamine hit. My veggie crack is what I call it literally because then they get better. And then I expect this behavior to continue as I get more and more food, more vegetables. And it usually, so far it's been seven years in the running, <laughs> but that is a uh, fascinating. Hmm. But that's also, it's, it moves beyond, you know, it's not like some three to one magic ratio, you know, you're actually hacking into how their brains work, which is finding that bigger, better offer. You know, our brains is really, it's Hercules. It's really good at learning. And so if you can tap into that learning process and it sounds like you are helping them find that bigger, better offer, then, you know, instead of magical thinking, we can move mountains. Interesting. That's right. It's magical thinking instead of moving mountains. Ah, I like how you ended that. That's excellent. Well, Dr. Brewer, thank you once again for an enlightening conversation. And I so enjoy any time we get to talk to you. And I'm sure the audiences get, get massive um, thought, at least thought provoked, provocating thoughts or provocation um, in their thought process and how they look at their everyday behavior. And um, I appreciate you. Thank you. No, thank you. It's been fun. <laughs> oh, it's always fun. <laughs>